welcome to day 16 of the federal election campaign. It's Tuesday the 26th of April. My name is Cam Wilson and welcome to Crikey's Election Cast. Okay, deep breath. We're two weeks into the campaign and I think it's time that we should take stock. Where are we? There's been plenty to talk about. Gaffes, transphobic candidates, surprise packs in the Pacific. But have they swayed how Australians are thinking of voting? Audience editor Imogen Champagne speaks to federal politics reporter Kishore Napier-Rahman about the state of the race and what happened over the weekend. And as always, a quick reminder that we record this live, so please forgive the audio quality. Over to you, Kish and Imo. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome back from another long weekend, and welcome to Crikey's Daily Election Cast, where we bring you an independent and honest look at the politics, policy, and campaign antics in the lead-up to the federal election. My name is Imogen Champagne, and today I'll be speaking with Crikey's federal politics reporter in Canberra, Kishore Napier-Rahman, about the latest opinion polls and what they can tell us about how the election campaign is going for both major parties so far. Just before we dive into that, we just sent out Crikey's Midday Edition, and it contained a really important investigative series from Associate Editor Amber Schultz. Amber has just returned from reporting from Ukraine's borders and has published an investigative series where she digs into the human trafficking at the refugee hubs surrounding Ukraine and what is being done in an official and non-official capacity to prevent this. It's a really important read, so please don't forget to have a look at some point today. It's up at crikey.com.au. The whole four-part series is unlocked and it's free to read and it's free to share, so do have a look. We also still have a sale on right now at Crikey, but it does end at midnight tomorrow night, so make sure you grab a yearly subscription quickly for up to $100 off before midnight tomorrow night. So without further ado, I'll just bring in Kishore Napier-Rahman from the political heart of Australia. Kishore, welcome back to Election Cast. G'day, Imogen. Good to be back on after another long weekend. One more long weekend. It's full of them. Um, so last night, on the last night of the long weekend, the AFR's Ipsos poll and the Australian's Views poll were both released. Can you talk us through the results of both of those opinion polls? Yeah, on the whole, pretty decent news for Labor in both of those polls. News poll has Labor up 53 to 47% on a two-party preferred basis. Ipsos's AFR poll has both parties' primaries sort of in the mid-30s, but it has the coalition gaining a point on primary vote. But still, if you plug that into a two-party preferred calculator based on the last election's preferences, it's a solid 55-45 lead to Labor. And a sort of average of all the polling that's been done at the moment kind of has Labor around 54-46. Now, if that swing was replicated nationally at an election tomorrow, Labor would be winning government at a canter. They'd have a sizable majority. But of course, a couple of things to factor in there. The first is that both parties have pretty low primary votes at the moment. The second is that, you know, that swing is not likely to be sort of uniform across the whole country. This is likely to be a tight election for in individual seats where there are different issues that are energizing or enraging voters. So look, Good news for Labor this far into the campaign, especially after things got off to a slightly inauspicious start with Anthony Albanese's day one gaffe. But on the whole, they'd be pretty satisfied with what the polling is showing them right now. Yeah, especially as, I mean, Anthony Albanese is also not even on the campaign trail right now. Yeah, absolutely. Albanese obviously sidelined after testing positive for COVID last Thursday. We don't know what effect that's going to have on the campaign. A lot of people worried that this would be, you know, a, a real big problem for Labor because we've never had a situation where a prime ministerial candidate has to lock themselves in a room for a week in the middle of ca the campaign. But I think 
there are obviously silver linings for Labor. You know, they've got to make the worst of the tricky situation, but it means that they're able to put out some of their other front bench talent and give them a lot more airtime. And it also, you know, Albanese has been fortunate. It doesn't seem like his his uh, infection has been too severe. He's been able to do a bunch of radio and television interviews in the intervening days. And also fortunate for him, it kind of came over a time over the Anzac long weekend during the tail end of school holidays in a lot of the country where most Australians aren't really super plugged into politics and the kind of daily grind of electioneering. So you'd have to think that hasn't been a huge net negative for the Labor campaign so far, but I guess we'll see how you know his last few days of isolation pan out. Yeah, it does seem to be pretty good timing for him to get COVID if there is ever a good time to get it. Um, the results that you talked about earlier, they're not significantly different to what the polls were showing at the beginning of the election campaign. What does this kind of lack of change in the polls tell us about how voters are reacting to the campaign so far? Look, I think it tells us a couple of things. The first is that you know, this campaign, it was a six week long campaign. That's a long time to stay plugged into politics. And these early sort of weeks have been disrupted by, like I said, Easter, Anzac Day. I don't think a lot of voters have been really, really plugged into what's going on so far. Um, Obviously, you know, people that follow the news closely have strong kind of political views, maybe have been. But I think the reason I'm saying that is if you look at some of the other finer grain detail within those polls, it's that voters are really not particularly enthused by both candidates, by both sort of potential prime ministers. Now, the Ipsos poll points to historic low levels of competence rating for both Scott Morrison and Anthony Albanese. Morrison has a net negative of, I think, minus 15 on, on news poll. Um, and, and Ipsos has them trusted by just 30% of voters. And that's the, the lowest level we've seen since Tony Abbott. So mm. neither Albanese or Morrison is really exciting the electorate in a particularly big way. And it's interesting because three weeks ago, Scott Morrison's election pitch, his opening salvo was, look, you don't have to like me very much. Hold your nose and vote for me. At, at times he said, Think of me like a dentist. You don't have to like your dentist, but I get the job done and I fix your teeth. Now, that's a horrifying thought for many people out there who have deep, deep phobias of dentists. But you can see that he's trying to say, look, you know, stick with the devil, you know, and he's still not very popular. Albanese's approval ratings, I think, are ahead of Morrison narrowly on one of the polls, but behind Morrison as preferred prime minister on the other. But either way, there's not a heap amount. You've got to say there's not a huge amount of enthusiasm for both these men in the electorate at large. And, and maybe that will change as people get a bit more invested, as we get down the kind of latest stretch of the campaign when people have to tune in a little bit more. But so far, they're not doing a huge amount to excite voters. Yeah, it's not a particularly inspiring first couple of weeks, I guess that's what voters are saying. Um, where have there been changes in the polls between now and the start of the campaign? I know there's been some very minor ones. Um, and what caused those changes, do you think? Look, it's been pretty minor. Some of the stuff that might be a kind of negative for Labor is that they've fallen away on things like the Albanese's record for economic management has been quite low on, on, on all the major polls. And obviously that is a reflection of that sort of gaffe that kicked off the start of the campaign. But you remember when that happened, there was a kind of narrative that took hold I would say very prematurely, where people were saying, oh, this could be the the moment that changes the campaign, or at the very least, there was a feeling that, you know, it would kick off a huge death spiral for the Labor campaign, that there was, there was that, that people were starting to panic, that they were losing control. You'd have to say that looking at the polling there, that, you know, that narrative maybe hasn't really borne out. And if Labor 
do go on to fail to form government. I don't think it will be because of that gaffe necessarily. I think that they've managed to withstand that quite well. They've managed to kind of stay in the hunt and or you'd have to say stay kind of at the sort of solid footing that they were at at the start of the campaign. So really there have been a few moves around the edges and, and obviously we knew from the start of the campaign that opinion polls always tighten, that opinion polls are of course a snapshot in time and don't necessarily tell us the full story of what's going on. Um, but despite those changes, it, it's been pretty, pretty samey for the last three weeks, you've got to say. Hmm. You mentioned the lowest primary votes a bit earlier. What does the path to victory look like for both major parties given that? Yeah, look, it's it's difficult to say. Obviously, when you get a poll, you, you get the primary votes for each party and then working out how that translates to a two-party preferred. Different polls use different methodologies. You know, some of them take into account things. They mostly take into account the sort of how preferences flowed at the last election, but they also take into account things like state elections and results and things like that. So the reason this is, you know, both parties are pretty low primary votes in the mid-30s right now and we don't necessarily know that the preferences aren't going to flow uniformly across the country and the swing is not going to happen uniformly across the country. So, for example, you know, the situation in a marginal seat like Reid in New South Wales that Labor are really targeting, the issues that people are invested in might be different from somewhere like Brisbane, uh, which is another key seat over in Queensland. But both parties are, are, are sort of got a fairly narrow path to victory. Labor need to pick up seven seats to form the narrowest possible majority in their own right. And they have to collect those seats in different parts of the country, like I said, for different issues matter. And for the Liberals as well, Morrison's own path to re-election is, is, continues to narrow. It's narrowing because you know, it doesn't seem like he's making huge amounts of ground on Labor in terms of narrowing the polls. It doesn't seem like you know, he, he, he may be marginally more popular on some metrics than, than Albanese, but he's still very unpopular. And another problem for them has been some of the recent issues around the Liberal candidate for Warringah, Catherine Deves. As we, you know, we've reported on this a fair bit, her transphobic comments have been quite toxic to a lot of Liberal voters and are causing a lot of hand-wringing and division within the New South Wales division of the Liberal Party. And it's going to make that make it potentially hard for the Liberals to withstand challenges in some of those inner urban, traditionally liberal seats where they're facing challenges from these sort of teal independent candidates. So there are fears about how that will affect their vote in places like Moringa and Wentworth. But on the other hand, there's almost, there's a belief among some in the kind of pundit class and some among liberal strategists that Morrison is happy to kind of like wave those seats away. And he thinks that these sort of transphobic derogatory comments could sort of energize some religious voters and, and could be a benefit in sort of suburban electorates as well. But again, it's a point, it points to the fact that liberals are sort of struggling in what was traditionally their heartland. They, they, they're realizing that they may have to pivot away from the heartland and Morrison might have to chart his course to retaining the lodge through the suburban mortgage belts of Sydney and Melbourne. So again, a narrow path to victory for both the government and for Labor. Labor are polling in a strong position right now, but of course, they've got to claw back a lot of seats all over the country. It'll, be a, it'll still be a tough battle. I think that's probably where we're at right now. Hmm, interesting. So this weekend passed, as we've mentioned, was the second long weekend since the federal election campaign began. Did anything significant happen that voters may have missed while they were enjoying their Mondays off? Well, I, I hope most people got a bit of time off and, and got some time away from the relentless sort of uh, political news cycle. I think yeah. the biggest sort of story that's been out there this weekend is obviously the fallout from China's security pact in the Solomon Islands. Now, this is obviously a huge foreign policy and national security issue for Australia. 
and it happens to be hitting right in the middle of the election campaign. Now, I read a piece just last week, or maybe it was the week before, about how on issues of national security, both the coalition and Labor are more or less in lockstep. That is in spite of the government really trying to attack Labor as being weak on national security. They both have similar commitments to raising defence spending. They both have similar sort of ways of approaching increasingly a, a China that is seen as increasingly antagonistic to Australia's interests. But of course, the Solomon story has been one where it really exposes a huge national security failure on, on the part of the government. Labor have been accusing the, the security agencies of being asleep on the wheel. They've said that it points to the Morrison government's specific step up and, and diplomatic sort of overtures in the Pacific is failing. They say it's a, a, a result of a, a, a diminishing amount of foreign aid and, and poor relations in those regions. The government's come out, of course, Anzac long weekend as well, a big sort of khaki sort of time. Peter Dutton is talking about how uh, telling Australians they need to prepare for war. So the, the megaphone from the Liberal Party is Labor won't keep you safe in an increasingly dangerous and unstable world. And that was sort of a an attack line that they wanted to run all the way through this election. But the Solomons thing just makes it that little bit harder for them to do that because Labor suddenly have a kind of a very obvious, I think, political win in something that is traditionally seen as rock-solid coalition territory. They can point to China moving, deepening its security ties with the Solomon Islands on the government's watch. So today, Labor announced a sort of Pacific package of their own, which included more foreign aid, training for security forces in the Pacific, a, a real kind of overture and, and, and to those Pacific nations. And the subtext of that was, you know, the government hasn't done a good enough job in the Pacific. The Solomon Islands is a clear, clear result of that failure. Here is what we're going to do better. I guess it was nice to see some policy actually come to the fore in the election as well, which is, you know, always good in an election like this. But, you know, I think this national security issue could continue to be a, a really important battleground, even if it's not something that voters are necessarily super plugged into or, or, or something that's going to swing votes. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, um, Bernard Keane has an um, interesting article about this uh, issue, how it's a failure of Australia's intelligence community um, as much as the government's up on crikey.com right now. Um, I think we'll wrap it up there. Thanks for your time today, Kishore. My pleasure, Imogen. Always good to chat. <laughs> that was federal politics reporter Kishore Napier-Rahman from Canberra. Uh, thank you to everyone who came along and joined us again today. We'll be back at the same time tomorrow. And if you want to listen to this again or share it, keep an eye out for Crikey's Afternoon Edition, which goes out at 5pm, or you'll also be able to find this up on our website later and anywhere that you get your podcasts. And before I leave, don't forget to have a read of Amber Schultz's investigation into human trafficking on Ukraine's borders. And do take advantage of our membership sale while you're there on till midnight tomorrow night. Okay, that's all from me. I'm Imogen Champagne. Thank you for listening and we'll speak with you again tomorrow. That was Crikey's federal politics reporter, Kishon Apia-Rahman, speaking to our audience editor, Imogen Champagne. That's our election cast for today. If you have a spare moment, we'd really appreciate it if you could review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, whatever platform you choose. And while you're waiting for your next edition, why not check out crikey.com.au for all of our content that we mentioned here today and more. And we do have a sale at the moment, so check that out. Okay, talk to you tomorrow.